guys can turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Many people in this world live life as if it was a game of t-ball. Let me explain what I mean by that. When I was a kid, I was not the kind of kid that you would describe as athletic. I was not talented at all. I was very small. I was absolutely always the worst player on, on any team, at any sport, even when girls were included. I was, I was always the low man on the totem pole. Uh, and that didn't bother me because I really didn't like sports. I would much rather be playing with Legos. But for some reason, in this country, every kid has to play t-ball at some point in time. And so my parents signed me up for t-ball and we went to practice and it took the coach like two minutes to figure out what to do with me. The same thing you do with the worst player on any baseball team. Sent me out to deep right field. And this is t-ball. So the ball goes like 10 feet, but I am way out in the boonies every game. And I get really bored out there because I didn't understand the game. I didn't care about it. So at some point, invariably, I would lay down and fall asleep in the middle of the game. So I was, without doubt, the worst player on our t-ball team, and yet it didn't matter because what happened at the end of the season? Every kid got the same trophy. I laughed at all the athletic, talented kids that worked so hard and they practiced at home and they tried so hard to win. Why? We all got the same trophy. You win just for showing up when you're playing t-ball. Sadly, there are so many people in this world who live life assuming that you win just for showing up. They assume that that if you get a job and you get married and you pay your taxes and you don't go to jail, that you are a success in life. But Paul saw life differently than that. Look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 9, starting in verse 19. We'll see how Paul defines success in life. He says, for though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all so that I may win more. To the Jews I became as a Jew so that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law as under the law, though not myself being under the law, so that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law as without law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I might win those who are without law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, so that I may by all means save some. I do all things for the sake of the gospel, so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Therefore I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I discipline my body and make it my slave. So that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified." To Paul, life was a competition with winners and losers. You do not win a trophy just for showing up. You have to run the race hard to win in life. Now, now to clarify, Paul is not saying that we are in competition with one another for a limited number of prizes. In ancient Greek games, there were no team sports. All they had was individual competitions like running or boxing. So Paul couldn't pull a team sport as his metaphor. What he's trying to help us understand is that each and every one of us is entered in our own race and victory is not guaranteed. 
To win the race of life, to be a success in God's eyes, takes hard work. It takes discipline. You must run hard to win your race. You're not competing against other Christians. You're competing against the enemy inside you. The apathy and selfishness and pride and worldliness that nips at our heels throughout life and tries to distract us and slow us down from the race that God has called us to run. All believers are entered in this race and all of us can win if we will follow the winning formula that Paul reveals in this passage. Paul describes three characteristics that set champions in sports and in life apart from everyone else. If you do these three things, you will win this race of life that God has called us to run. So the first characteristic Paul tells us about, first characteristic that separates champions from everyone else in life, winners know how to win. Champions know what it takes to win their race. So my sport of choice, a sport that I enjoy watching is Formula One racing. So it's very fast cars driving around really tight tracks. And if you've never been to Formula One race and you want to go sometime, here's the secret. You, you pick a spot to sit next to the tightest corner on the track. And for the race, the whole race, you, you watch the cars come around that tight corner. What you will notice is that the best drivers put their car on exactly the same spot in the turn at exactly the same speed every lap around. A variance of like one mile per hour the entire race. Why? Because they know exactly what they must do to drive the fastest lap possible so they can win the race. All great athletes know exactly what it takes to win their race. They have great clarity, great focus. They know what they must do and they they ignore everything else. Well, Paul wants us to have that same kind of clarity in life. He he wants us to know exactly what we must do to succeed at this thing called life. He wants us to have that clarity so we can focus on what's essential and ignore the rest. And Paul gives us the, the answer. What must we do to win this race God has called us to win? It starts right there at the beginning, verse 19. For though I myself am free from all men, I've made myself a slave to all, so that I may win more. To the Jews I became as a Jew so that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law as under the law, though not being myself under the law, so that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law as without law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I might win those who are without law. To the weak I became weak that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men so that I may by all means save some. I do all things for the sake of the gospel so that I may become a fellow partaker taker of it. In this world, there are lots of people running lots of different races, but there is only one race that counts. One race in life that counts. You win this race, you win life. It's the race to share the gospel effectively with as many people as possible before you die. That is what it means to be a success in God's eyes. You did everything you could to share the gospel effectively with as many people as possible before you died. Paul gives himself to that race. The gospel, that is the good news that that God loves sinners like us so much that he sent his own son to, to die in our place. 
to take our punishment for us and then rise from the dead, defeating sin and death so that we could be forgiven and have eternal life as a free gift. The gospel is, is the good news that God's love is not something you have to earn, that heaven isn't something you have to work for. It's something that Jesus has already earned for you and offers you for free and all you have to say to God is thank you. Yes, I want that gift of eternal life. I believe that Jesus died for me and rose from the dead so that I could be forgiven for free. So let me ask you the most important question this morning. Has there been some moment in your life where you said thank you to God? We said, God, I believe. Your love, your forgiveness, your eternal life, they're free. Jesus earned them for me by dying on the cross and rising from the dead. If you've never chosen to believe that, if you've not made that decision to say yes to God's gift of eternal life, I I invite you, I plead with you, please come talk to me. Or or send me an email later this week or talk to someone here at the church. There's nothing more important you'll ever think about in life. Paul chose to believe that good news, that God's son died for his sins and rose from the dead. He chose to believe it on the road to Damascus. He, He accepted the gospel, and by accepting the gospel, Paul's life became very simple and very focused. From that point on, he knew exactly what he needed to do to be a success in life, to win this race of life. That's what happens. When you trust the gospel, life becomes very focused for you. You become like a marathon runner. Everything everything else in your life is easy to ignore. You are focused just on this one race, this one essential thing, to share that good news effectively with as many people as possible for however many years God gives you on this planet. That was the race that Paul dedicated his life to, and he challenges us as we run that race to be willing to do all things for the sake of the gospel. All things. Paul was willing to sacrifice anything and everything that got in the way of sharing the gospel effectively with as many people as possible. So Paul sacrificed his rights and his privileges and his preferences. To the Jew, he became a Jew. To those under the law, that's, that's the Jews. He became like them so that he could win more of them to Christ. To the Gentiles, to those outside the law, Paul became like them to win as many of them as possible for Christ. And to the weak, in this context, the weak are, are the poor, the slaves, the oppressed. Paul became like them to win as many of them to Christ as possible. Paul became all things to all people so he could by any means necessary win as many as possible for Jesus. Now let me clarify, Paul did not become a con man. He didn't play the part of a chameleon, being anything uh, to try to win popularity with people. And Paul wasn't a sellout. He did not compromise the, the grace of the gospel when he was with legalistic Jews. He did not compromise the righteousness of the gospel when he was with immoral Gentiles. What Paul was doing and what he's challenging us to do is he was willing to step outside of his comfort zone and enter into the world of the other person. So to the Jews, the first century Jews lived very strict lives. 
Because they believed that through their legalistic, strict practice of religion, they could earn God's love. Now, Paul knew that wasn't true. Paul knew he already had God's love. He didn't need to practice all these strict traditions of Judaism. But when he was with the Jews, he submitted himself to their traditions, to their ways of life, so that he could do life with them, so that perhaps he could introduce them to the free love of God found in Jesus Christ. But when he was with the Gentiles, he did the exact opposite. Gentiles were very immoral people in the ancient world. The Jews wouldn't even eat with them because they were afraid that the immorality would rub off on them. But Paul did life with them. He ate with them. He traveled with them. He sat with them. Some of his best friends were Gentiles. He entered into their world and cared about what they care about so that he could show them the love of Jesus Christ. And finally, the weak. Paul was not a member of this class called the weak. Paul was a freeborn Roman citizen, which in his world meant he was high class, high status, upper echelons of Roman society. But Paul was willing to set aside that status, those rights, those privileges that were his by birth. He sat them aside so that he could sit down with the poor, with the slaves, with the oppressed, eat with them, love on them, do life with them. No Roman citizen would ever do that. You shun the poor. You don't do life with them, but Paul did so that somehow he could show the love of Christ to them. What Paul is challenging us to do is to sacrifice our rights and our privileges and our preferences and step out of our comfort zones so that we can enter into the world of other people, so that we can show them and share with them the love of Jesus Christ. So let's make this practical. What does this actually look like? Well, what this looks like is uh, you're at work one day and you notice a coworker who's having a really bad day really emotional about something probably going on at home. Well, you have the right to keep your head down and get your work done so you can leave at five. That is your right. Are you willing to set aside that right and work late that night so that you can come sit down next to your coworker, put your arm around their shoulder and find out what's going on? How can I pray for you? Are you willing to enter into all their pain, all their drama and grieve with them and show them the sacrificial love of Jesus Christ? Here's another example. You have the right to sit on your couch and watch TV in the evening. That is your free right. But you look out the window and you see your neighbor working in his garage. Are you willing to set aside your right, leave the comfort zone of your living room couch, walk across the street and get to know your neighbor? Introduce yourself, find out what he likes to do, what he cares about, build a friendship with him so maybe one day you can share the gospel with him. Here's another example. You're walking across campus and you see a group of international students. You have the right to hang out with people who are just like you. Because that's easy, that's comfortable. Are you willing to set aside that right? And step out of your comfort zone and engage with people from other races, from other nations. Are you willing to invite them to dinner in your home or your apartment? Or even harder, when they invite you to dinner to eat some food that is way outside your comfort zone, are you willing to do that? I once had to eat the grilled fat off a sheep's rear end for the chance to share the gospel with two Muslim men. And it was totally worth it. I didn't like the food, but who cares? You can talk about the gospel with somebody. Are you willing to step outside of your comfort zone to enter into the world of the other person? Just to pause for a moment. All that's in the news about Ferguson and New York. Ultimately, what do we need to do? 
We need to be willing to step outside of our comfort zone. Whatever our comfort zone is, whatever group you're in, whatever race you're in, whatever position you bring, are you willing to step out of the comfort zone of of your preferences, of your understanding, of your truth, of your experiences, of your reality, and enter into the world of the other person and listen and care about them and love on them? Paul is challenging us to sacrifice our rights, our privileges, our preferences, to enter into the world of other people, to leave our comfort zone and enter their world, care about them, love them, so that we can share the gospel with them. That is what success looks like in life. That's the winning life. That you are willing to do anything and everything to share the gospel effectively with as many people as possible before you die. If you want to know, what does God want me to do? What is success in God's eyes? It's that life. The person who lays aside his rights, his privileges, his preferences in order to share the gospel effectively with as many people as possible in the years that God gives them on earth. So make sure that you know how to share the gospel. Make sure that you know how to share that truth and then look for opportunities to leave your comfort zone and enter the world of other people, to listen to them, to love them, and to share with them the love and truth of Jesus Christ. That's the first key to winning, the first part of Paul's winning formula. You've got to know how to win. You've got to dedicate your life to this race to share the gospel effectively with as many people as possible. Second element to, to winning in life, to being a success in life. Most athletes know that victory does not begin on the court or on the track. Victory begins in the gym. Days, weeks, months, years before the race even starts. Second key to winning You must train your body into submission. Look with me starting in verse 25. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Victory begins in the gym. The greatest athletes are the ones who train the most. They sacrifice their time, their comfort to to train their bodies into submission, to refine their bodies so that when all their competitors are falling behind, they can sprint to the finish. In Formula One driving, uh, if you are a great Formula One driver, you have to be able to sustain an average heart rate of 170 beats per minute for the entire race, which is two hours. So for two hours, your heart has to beat 170 to 180 beats per minute. So that's the same as an elite marathon runner. So you're running a marathon is what your heart thinks the whole time you're in the car. It's incredibly hard to do. So to be able to have that kind of stamina, uh, the best drivers are in their car seven days a week. One day to qualify, one day to race, and the rest to practice. The best drivers will spend 15,000 miles a year in practice laps. Think about it. 15,000 miles driving in a little circle over and over again. Accelerating hard, braking hard, cornering hard at high G loads so they can build up the stamina of their circulatory system. And when they're not in the car, they're in the pool or in the gym or on the track because they have to be incredibly fit to be able to run the race and win. Well, Paul is calling us to have that same kind of stamina in life. The greatest athletes live a life of constant sacrifice. The greatest athletes, they live painful lives, right? Painful, uncomfortable lives, disciplining their bodies into submission. Paul wants us to do the same. 
He is calling us to to live lives of of self-discipline, to train ourselves, to train our bodies, to be able to submit to this race, to be able to run the race that God has called us to run. So if you want to win at this thing called life, you need to understand that your life is going to be uncomfortable. The life that pleases God is not the easy life. The life that pleases God is not the comfortable life. The life that pleases God is the hard life. The life that is full of sacrifice and self-discipline. You are giving up things to be able to walk with the Lord. You are training yourself to be faithful to him. Now, how do we train our bodies? For a great athlete, they're in the gym. That's not what God is calling us to do in this context. How do you spiritually train yourself? Well, this is where the spiritual disciplines come into play. Spiritual disciplines are habits or practices that believers have been putting into place in their lives for 2,000 years. They've been doing this for a long time. I'll share a few of these disciplines with you. If you want to win this thing called life, you must practice these disciplines not once, not twice, but as your habit. These are how you train your body into submission. First discipline is fasting. Fasting means to give up something that is morally permissible. So so you don't fast from sexual sin. You just gotta never do that. Fasting is giving up something that's okay, like food or, or drink or some form of good entertainment like TV. You say no to it for a period of time, not because you're trying to earn brownie points with God. If you're fasting to please God and make him happy with you, it's not gonna work. You fast because you are training yourself. You are building your endurance and your stamina. You are training your willpower to say no to the desires of your body. That's the point of fasting. You're training yourself. You're hardening your resolve. You're strengthening your willpower so that you can run the race God has called you to run. It's the first discipline that God gives us to build our stamina, the discipline of fasting. Second, the discipline of scripture memory. You commit large blocks of the Bible to memory. Now, memorization is hard, and most of us now have the Bible on our phone, so we can look at it anytime. So because of that, most people don't memorize scripture anymore, but that's, that's a mistake. The reason that we memorize scripture is not just to have the Bible easily accessible to us. The reason we memorize scripture is because it trains our minds to hold on to the word of God, to hold it in place so that we can meditate on it and focus on it and and let it go deeply into us. Memorize scripture because it strengthens you, it hardens you so that you can hold on to God's word. The second discipline God's given us to train our endurance. Third, the discipline of solitude. Discipline of solitude is getting alone with God. So getting away from the distractions of life to a quiet place where you can sit in silence before God. The discipline of solitude means turning off your phone, unplugging from the digital world for a time so that you can sit before God in silence and listen to him. Now that is hard. We live in a world full of noise and distraction, so it's really uncomfortable at first when you unplug. But if you'll do that, it gets easier with time. You find that you'll begin to crave those times of getting alone in silence before God because it teaches you to listen to him and find strength in him. It's a third discipline. Fourth discipline, the discipline of giving, sacrificing your time, your money, your possessions, and giving them to God's kingdom, to God's church, to God's people, to people in need. This one is also hard. It's really hard to give away. And for many of you, you don't have much to give. Students especially, you're, you're almost living in poverty yourself at the moment, and yet God is calling you to practice this discipline of giving, even if it's just $5 a month. You, you get into the habit now while you don't have a lot so that when you do have a lot, it's a habit in your life to give it to the Lord. 
to give it to his kingdom, to his church, to people, to missionaries, to those in need. Practice this discipline of giving. What that will do is it will train your heart to care about God and other people more than yourself. That's the purpose of giving. Finally, last and most important discipline, the discipline of prayer. All great spiritual victories in your life will be won on your knees. Getting before the Lord in prayer, that is how you access the supernatural power of God to do impossible things in and through you. Now, one of the most popular questions I have been asked, or frequent questions over the years, most uh, common theological question is, can you please explain why we pray if God is sovereign? If God already knows what's going to happen, if he's sovereign in the heavens, then what is the purpose of prayer? Every time a student asks me that question, I try to come up with really some good-sounding theological answer so I know what what I'm talking about. But I'll just be honest with you guys, I don't know. Whatever I have said in the past, really, I don't know. I don't know why a sovereign, almighty God who knows the future wants us to pray. What I do know is that that God said, pray without ceasing and I will move mountains. And so I don't understand theologically the point of prayer. I just know prayer works. Somehow, in the mysteries of God, you get down on your knees before the Lord and he works in powerful ways. If you will get on your knees, if you will learn that discipline of going before the Lord, he will do incredible things in your life. But it's hard. It's a discipline. It's uncomfortable to spend time with the Lord in prayer. I have to pause on my to-do list. That is humbling and that is hard. But I must learn the discipline of prayer. If I will practice these spiritual disciplines, it will train my body, my mind, my spirit to walk with the Lord, to run this race successfully that he has put before me. And so let's get practical for a moment. I want to challenge you. Look at that list of disciplines for a moment. Which one are you worst at? Of that list of six disciplines, which is the one that you struggle with the most or or maybe you've never tried or you tried once years ago and gave it up? What's the discipline that that you're worst at? Do you see it? Now I want you to commit a little bit of time this week to try that discipline out. A little bit of time this week. Now, students, I know, crazy busy week for you, but you can give a little bit of time. Just a little bit of time to try out the discipline on the board that you are the worst at. Try it this week, and then I'd ask you to try it the next week and try it the week after that so that you begin to build a habit of that discipline in your life so that it can begin to harden you and strengthen you to be able to run the race God has called you to win. Great victories of life are won in the hidden, private practice of the spiritual disciplines. When we get alone with the Lord and practice these habits in our lives, he strengthens us, he builds our endurance so that we can run the marathon race he's called us to win. The second key to winning this race of life is to train your body into submission by practicing the spiritual disciplines third and final part of the winning formula that sets champions apart from everybody else in sports and in life. The way you win is you keep your eye on the prize. It is not in our nature to do hard things for no reason. If you ask me to do something that is hard and you don't tell me why, I will quit. When it gets hard, I'm going to quit if you don't give me any reason to endure. Great athletes, why do they put forth the incredible sacrifice in the gym and on the court or on the track? Why do they work so hard? Because they have their eyes on the prize. 
They want the fame or the glory or the recognition or the money that comes with winning. Why do high school boys at the end of every summer endure two-a-days in Texas football? Why do they do that? Because they want to be the next Johnny or Mike Evans or J.J. Watts. They see it. They keep their eye on the prize. They dream about that, and that motivates them to endure the pain and the heat and the struggle. You will not stay in the race for the rest of your life if you do not have motivation, if you do not have your eyes fixed on the prize that God has in store for you when you see him at the end of this life. What is that prize that awaits faithful believers? What is that prize that awaits you if you cross the line of your race in life? Well, Paul tells us there's two things that await us when we stand before God, two prizes that he longs to give to faithful believers. The first is in verse 23. He says, I do all things for the sake of the gospel so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. That's a regrettable translation. Partaker in Greek makes it sound like beneficiary like Paul thought maybe he had to preach the gospel in order to be saved by the gospel that's wrong it's bad translation it should read partner that's what it means Paul does all things for the sake of the gospel so that he may become a partner of the gospel now how is it a a reward to get to partner with the gospel it's like this I want you to imagine that Warren Buffett you know who that guy is Warren Buffett, second richest man in the world, many billionaire many times over, uh, perhaps the, the greatest investor of the last 50 years. I want you to imagine that he finds out who you are and finds your phone number and he calls you up. He says, hey, I, I want you to be my partner. And you're shocked, you're amazed, you can't believe it. Wow, but you got like $5 to your name. So <laughs> not gonna be able to contribute much to this partnership. But, but Buffett says, that's okay. I'll provide the money, you provide the time, we'll split the profits. You want in? Yeah. Yeah, I, I'll say yes to that. Greatest investor of the last 50 years, is he inviting me in? Absolutely, what a privilege that would be. Well, that is what Paul means by partnering with the gospel, except that partnering with the gospel is even better than partnering with Warren Buffett because Buffett, all he can do is make money, the gospel. The gospel can change the world forever. The gospel is the one great hope for humanity. It is the only thing on the planet that can change the destiny of the human race. And so, like most of you, I, I've been following the news of, of the events in, in Ferguson and New York, and, and it's incredibly painful to see all that's going on. There's so much anger, there's, there's so much uh, fighting, there's, there's so much misunderstanding, there's so much grief. And, and I'll be honest, I, I do not know what our country, what America should do to prevent those kind of tragedies from happening in the future. It's too big a problem for me. I don't know what to do. I do know that no amount of social change, no amount of economic change, no amount of legal change can stamp out the racism and the selfishness and the fear that is inside every single one of us. Nor will any of them raise Michael Brown or Eric Garner from the dead, which is ultimately the only way that you could make that all right. What I do know is this. The gospel can stamp out racism. The gospel can destroy selfishness. The gospel can dispel fear. And the gospel can raise the dead. The gospel is the one and only hope for the human race. That is the solution, the only solution to a problem as deep and intractable as Ferguson and New York. 
And so what Paul wants you to understand is when you give your life for the race, for the purpose of sharing the gospel, what you're doing is you're hitching your wagon to the most powerful force on earth, the one and only thing on this planet that can make a difference in the lives of human beings for all eternity. You get to become a partner with the gospel in doing the only thing that has eternal significance, eternal meaning. If you want your life to count forever, this is the way. You do whatever it takes to share the gospel effectively with as many people as possible. That's how you partner with the gospel. That's how you make your life count now and forever. That is the first gift that God will give to faithful believers. He will make your life count. He will make the days that you spend on this planet eternally significant by making you a partner with his almighty, supernatural, destiny-changing good news. God wants to make your life eternally significant. He will, if you will partner with the gospel. That's the first gift that God offers to those believers who, who give everything to share the gospel with as many people as possible. The second gift he has in store for those who win this race of life begins in verse 24. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? So run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. This wreath that Paul's talking about is a crown that the Greeks made out of either pine branches or fig leaves or wilted celery. So that's fun. Put wilted celery on your head. The crown itself was worthless. What matters is what came with it. Glory honor, recognition. You win the Greek games and everyone knows your name. You you go back to your hometown and they throw a parade in your honor and they commission people to write songs and poetry about you and they carve statues of you and they give you a seat of honor in the city council. So athletes in the ancient world, what were they running for? What were they trying to win? Honor. And that's what Paul says for us. The reward that is in store for us if we are faithful in this life to run this race to share the gospel, what Christ will give us on that day when we see him is eternal glory. That is the crown that God has in store for us. The the eternal imperishable wreath is unending honor and glory and recognition when we stand before Jesus Christ. Paul talks about that, that moment, standing before Jesus for judgment in 2 Corinthians, the next book in your Bible, chapter 5, verse 10. He says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Now let's be clear, this judgment seat of Christ, where you are judged, it's not about heaven or hell. You, you don't get to this judgment seat of Christ without going to heaven, because that's where it is. Getting out of hell, that's by faith alone. You, you're already, if you trusted the gospel, you're already saved from hell. This judgment is about the reward of honor. When you stand before Jesus and he evaluates not your faith, but your deeds. Did you live a life dedicated to the gospel? If you did, then he will reward you with honor. If not, then you will lose out on that honor and glory and recognition. So at the end of chapter 9, 
If you look again at the end of chapter 9 when Paul says, after I, I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Let's be really clear. Disqualified doesn't mean go to hell. Disqualified doesn't mean lose your salvation. Paul is absolutely clear throughout everything he wrote. Salvation, once saved, always saved by faith in the gospel alone. Disqualified means to lose out on what? On the reward, on the honor, the glory, the crown, the recognition that Jesus wants to crown you with if you will be faithful in this life. That takes us back to what we studied a few weeks ago in chapter 3. 1 Corinthians three fourteen through 15, Paul talks about two believers who stand before the judgment seat of Christ and Jesus evaluates whether they spent their lives building his church by sharing the gospel or whether they wasted their life on themselves. He says, if any man's work, which he has built on it, that is the church, remains, if it lasts through the judgment, then he will receive a reward. But if any man's work is burned up, so judgment reveals he wasted his life, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so is through fire. So salvation, that is guaranteed. You will be in heaven if you have trusted in Jesus as your Savior. But, but by trusting in Jesus as your Savior, God entered you in this race to share the gospel effectively with as many people as possible. If you will dedicate yourself to that race, if you will dedicate your life to sharing the gospel, then when you stand before Jesus Christ, he will place on your head glory and honor and recognition that will last forever. He will say to you, well done, good and faithful servant. In the front of all of watching heaven, Jesus himself will give glory and honor to you. That is what is in store For the believer who will run the race God has placed before him. That's what God wants to to crown us with in the next life. If we're faithful in this life, we will be rewarded in the next life with honor and glory from Jesus. So let's, let's just be real clear for a moment. I trust that every one of you, deep inside you, even if you won't admit it to other people, deep inside you, you have ambition. You have an ambition to be honored and recognized, you have that desire deep within you, I want you to know that desire is not bad. God put it there. That desire is not bad so long as your ambition is for honor, glory, and recognition from the right person. If your ambition is for honor, glory, and recognition from the world, then that's sinful, and that's going to lead you down a dark path. But if your ambition is for honor and glory and recognition from your Savior, from Jesus, then that's good, that's godly. Jesus put that desire in you because he wants to reward you. When you stand before him for judgment, he wants you to pass. He's like the greatest teacher ever trying to get you to get an A. He wants to crown you with glory and honor that lasts forever, for all eternity. That idea of winning glory and honor and recognition from from Jesus, that's what motivated Jim Elliott missionary who who went to the Aka Indians and they killed him. He was a martyr. He gave his life to share the gospel with the Aka Indians. He wrote in his journal six years before that he was murdered, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Elliot understood all the things in this life, my money, my possessions, my relationships, my status, even my mortal life, my body, I will give it all up because none of it lasts. None of that is making it into the next life. I will sacrifice anything and everything in this life for the sake of that which will last forever. Honor, glory, recognition from Jesus Christ. Hearing, well done, good and faithful servant. The hope of that prize motivated him to literally give his life. 
That's the same thing that, that motivated David Livingston, the great British explorer and missionary to Africa. As he looked back at his life that appeared to be full of, of sacrifice for the sake of the gospel, he was speaking to students at Cambridge and he said, people talk of the sacrifice I have made in spending so much of my life in Africa. Say rather it is a privilege. Anxiety, sickness, suffering, or danger now and then with a foregoing of the common conveniences and charities of this life may make us pause and and cause the spirit to waver and the soul to sink, but let this only be for a moment. All these are nothing when compared with the glory which shall be revealed in and for us. I have never made a sacrifice. There will be a day when you stand before Jesus for judgment. It is coming. For all of us, we will stand before Jesus and he will evaluate our lives. And what Livingstone is trying to help us understand is that if we have lived faithfully, if we've given up much in this life for the sake of sharing the gospel on that day, Jesus will look at us and say, well done, good and faithful servant, and we will forget all of the sacrifices we made. They'll be meaningless. They'll be nothing compared to the joy and glory of that moment with our Lord. God, understand, God will be no man's debtor. Whatever you give up in this life for the sake of sharing the gospel, God will repay you a billion times over in the next life with honor, recognition, glory that will last forever. There is only one race that matters in this life, the race to share the gospel effectively with as many people as possible before we die. That's all that matters So are you willing to lay aside your rights, your privileges, your comfort, your preferences to enter into the lives of other people and sacrificially share with them the good news of Jesus Christ, the love of God in word and in deed? That is how you live a successful life, a life that Jesus would say, well done to. Please don't waste your life running insignificant races Chasing after insignificant prizes. Give your life to the one and only thing that matters. Sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you that there is a message of love and of hope and of grace that can deliver human beings from sin, that can awaken the dead, that can change humanity. We praise you for the power of the gospel. And we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, who willingly gave his life as a sacrifice to make the gospel possible. We thank you that you have rescued us from our sins, that you have forgiven us, and you've granted us eternal life as an absolutely free gift. And now, Lord, we pray that we would so love that good news, that it would so excite us and stir us up, that we would do anything and everything for the chance of sharing that good news effectively with anyone who will listen. I pray, Lord, that that would be our ambition in life. I pray that we would be like great marathon runners who jettison everything that slows them down and run with endurance the race set before them. Pray, Father, help us to do whatever it takes. Help us to be bold. Help us to be courageous. Help us to be willing to step out of our comfort zones, out of what comes easy, and to walk across the street, to reach out across the room, to share the gospel with someone who doesn't yet know Jesus. I pray, Lord, that you would use us to draw countless millions of men and women to Jesus 
We pray, Father, that you would change this world through the lives of, of us in this room. You would reach the nations, that you would reach the lost, even here in our own community. Help us to glorify Jesus through the lives that we live. We lift him up. In his name we pray, amen. God bless you guys. See you next week.